All right, we'll grab your Bibles and open them up to 1 John chapter 4. Uh, Last week, I introduced a new series on the fruit of the Spirit, Um, and in this, we looked at the question, what are the spiritual fruits? Uh, We use this as a chance to sort of set the scene um, and understand what this list of virtues means for us. And if you were here with us, we came up with a five-part definition, because why not, right? Five-part definition of what this fruit is and, and what it means for us. And so let me go over that real quick before we jump in today. The fruit of the Spirit are the ways that God leads His people and protects them from the destructive results of following their own fleshly desires. They are the means of sanctification for us. They are the product of sanctification They are the lens by which we view all of the options of the world, and they assist us in separating the good that God designed into us from the sin that has corrupted. And so as we interact with these characteristics one by one, uh, we're doing more than just encouraging you to live them out. No, these are the means of of shaping and and inviting us back into relationship with God that He has created for us. Now, in order to understand how this works, uh, we're going to look at each one of these characteristics thematically through the narrative of Scripture. And my hope is that as we do this, we don't just agree that the fruit of the Spirit is good. I'm guessing most of you reading the list go, uh-huh, yeah, it's good. But my prayer is that as we interact with each of these, that our understanding of God and our relationship to Him transforms us into worshipers who live out this fruit as a natural response to our seeing of, of seeing who God is. And so we're going to begin today with the first on the list, um, the greatest of them all, love. Now there's been an argument among theologians uh, as they approach the fruit of the Spirit as to whether or not love is one of the fruit or whether or not it is the fruit, um, the one from which the rest flows. The idea being that, that, that basically The fruit of the Spirit is love, and the rest of this list is actually kind of defining what love is. Now, I'm not going to take a side in that argument. I will confirm that love seems to be the overriding virtue from which all the others flow. In the Bible, it is the big idea. And so it's no small task that we have ahead of us today uh, to build a picture of what divine love is and what that means for us and how we love. So let's not waste any time. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, it says this. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, 1 John is a difficult book um, if you approach it from the wrong angle. And what I mean by that is 1 John is meant to be a book that brings a great deal of assurance and confidence for the believer. It is here to comfort and, and, and help someone who is a believer see that they are born of God. John says this at the very beginning of the book. This is verse 4. He says, we are writing these things so that your or our joy may be complete. Now, I say it's difficult because as a lot of people read 1 John, they read it as a book of condemnation. And there's a reason for this. And the reason is, two verses later, this is exactly what John says in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so the question is, John, what happened between verse 4 and verse 6? What happened to you, man? 
Right? I'm writing so that your joy may be complete. And then two verses later, if you claim to be a Christian while walking in sin, you are a liar. Now, to answer this, we have to, to kind of get to the bottom of what is the lie that he is referring to. Now, don't worry. I'll get to love in a minute, but this is important. Um, many people will read this as if you have fellowship with him and continue to sin, you are lying about having a relationship with God. In other words, if you sin, you are not really a Christian. And so your relationship with God hinges on you doing a better job at obedience. Be better. Stop lying. Then you can have salvation. But that's not what John is saying. The lie that he's referring to is how you are living. You are living a lie. The lie is that you know the truth and you don't put it into practice. And so what John is doing is he is encouraging believers, right, people who have a relationship with the God of the universe, to live out a life that is a truthful reflection of the love and the joy and the grace that they have been shown. It's John saying, stop living a lie. And when you do, you will have a more complete and consistent joy. And so this is how we have to approach 1 John as an encouragement to believers to live out what they know. Right? Now, now back to love. Um, John begins this section by urging those who are beloved, those who have been shown the love of God to love one another. Right? He's tying the love that we have received to the love that we give. And ultimately all he is doing here is reiterating the words of Jesus Christ from John 13, where Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so this is an important aspect of what love is. It's a reflection or a response to the love that has been given to us. And so love isn't something that we produce. It's not something that we just feel into existence. Love is something that has been provided for us. And something that we can only truly live out once we understand the source of this love. Which is where the second half of 1 John 4, 7 goes. He says, for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So God is the source of love and to love rightly is to know him, to be in relationship with him. Now to understand how this all works We are going to do, as I said, kind of a a biblical theology of love. And so, where would you start but the beginning? Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 tells us, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So that's the beginning. But before anything was made, before life was created, God was. And God's existence before the world came to be was in what we call triune perfection, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit unified together as one, dwelling together in this perfect, beautiful, divine love. And so while the Bible starts with with kind of our beginning, creation, we get hints in the Bible of this time before, this, this, this kind of what existed before anything was made. And we see this in places like John 17, the high priestly prayer, 
where Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And this idea of in your presence with glory is Jesus desiring to be back in the loving environment where Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father and all of those vice versa, right? God existing together in loving community of Trinity. And out of this, God chooses to create in order to share this divine love with a people. And so this is an important thing. God does not create out of a need for love, but out of a desire to share his glory. The plan is to pour out his love graciously on a people, to invite them into this loving perfection for eternity. Now, as you're reading Genesis 1, you're like, ah, that doesn't really tell us a whole lot about how he's going to do that. No, no, that's to come, right? That's the story of Scripture. The first three chapters are here to make it clear that he is the source. God is the one from whom all blessings flow. And so in the first two chapters, we see God's love made known through creation. God not only creates, but everything he creates is very good. Which means creation at its very core is a perfect reflection of the love of God. Everything is taken care of. Everything is provided for. Relationships are held together in this perfect harmony by the the loving creator. And so the perfect balance of relationships that exists in the Trinity is reflected in how the world was put together. This is why we can study science, why we can study the world, why it makes sense because there's this beautiful order to it, this beautiful order to the very point where where we can see all of the things required even to sustain life. It's ordered. And then as a final act of creative love, God made people in his image. Human beings are made to be part of the creation, the part of the creation which most clearly and accurately images the love of God. And so God loves his creation, he loves his people, and they are meant to respond to this love by loving his love. Right, in the same way that the Trinity is fueled by Father, Son, and Spirit loving one another completely, human beings are given access and invited into a loving relationship with God that is glorious. Now Jonathan Edwards, who wrote a lot on this Trinitarian love and its implications in creation, points out that this love only works in humility. He says, it appears that divine love implies humility because when God is truly loved, he is loved as an infinite superior. Which is to say, the role of human beings in this loving relationship is worship, or loving the infinite superior humbly. Now, if you know your Bible... Moving into Genesis chapter 3, we run into some problems. As we move into Genesis chapter 3, we see human beings are not comfortable in this position. While God has provided everything that we need, we want the one thing that we cannot have, and that is the superiority. And so the serpent lies to Adam and Eve and tells them that they can be like God. And they act on it. And when they do, they not only don't live out the living role that they were created for as creatures worshiping creator, but in this act, they declare that God is unloving, that his love cannot be trusted, 
that God is not good, and so we need to take control ourselves. And when Adam and Eve sin, all of these relationships that are held together in perfect love, loving harmony fracture. And all of a sudden, not only is their relationship with God broken, but their love for one another breaks, right? Blame and envy creep in, and now all earthly relationships have conflict. Their relationship with their self gets twisted, right? Shame and insecurity becomes a regular part of the human experience. Even the creation around them that was meant to provide everything that they need, but also meaning, happiness, it is subjected to the curse. It no longer operates in congruence with human beings, and we see thorns and thistles come out of the ground and will fight with us every day of our lives. And so God's goodness and blessings are destroyed for the sake of human independence. And the right response from a, a good, just God who has been rejected, has just watched what he loves and has created, attacked, would be to respond in kind to those who have acted in such an egregious way. And yet we see that God responds other. He justly recognizes the sin of Adam and Eve and even states the results of their sin in these curses. But in the midst of those curses, he reveals that his love is going to heal the break. And in the first glimpse of the gospel, we get this promise, which is actually from the curse on Satan. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. The promise there is that there will come from woman an offspring who will defeat Satan and reverse the negative effects of the fall. In love, God will act to provide a means for his people to enter back into the loving relationship that he created them to be in. Now, the next eight chapters of the Bible reveal the weight of sin and the depth of relational brokenness. It gives us a picture of the many ways in which human desire will Desire to be God will cause damage, as well as the fair and right punishment of this death, that this is death. And so in those next eight chapters, we get the stories of Cain and Abel and Noah and the Tower of Babel, right? Just destruction upon destruction upon destruction. And yet, in the midst of it over and over again, we see that God is always there, keeping his creation from the worst of their ends. God is always showing grace even in the midst of their depravity. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we get to the next part of God's loving story where he calls out a specific man, Abram, and tells him that through him and his descendants, God is going to pour out his love. This is the promise that God makes with him. In Genesis chapter 12, it says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see two things here. First, God will put his love on Abram and his descendants. But also, he will use the descendants of Abram to be a blessing, to reveal his love to the world. And so God is going to direct his love on a specific people. And he makes it clear that these people do not deserve his love. They're no better than the others, but God chooses to love them, and through them, he says, the world will see the love of God. 
And so the rest of the Old Testament is about how God directs them and gives to them and disciplines them and protects them and reveals His glory to them. And as He gives His law to them at Mount Sinai, as He establishes them as a nation, God reiterates to them this loving relationship that He has established. Right? This is what He says to them. He says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? You are my treasured possession. You are my beloved. You are the way that I will declare my love to the world as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so God's plan is to show his love to the world in the way that he loves Israel. And over and over again, God's people do not love God. They do not love others as they should. They continue to sin, just as Adam and Eve did. But over and over and over again, God also gives them a way back. And through sacrifices and cleansing rituals, God is teaching His people how to love and trust Him, even in their sin. And His love is shown in that He keeps His promise to His people in spite of their continual rebellion. So the Old Testament is really this messy declaration of God's love despite all of the reasons not to. God is instilling in His people an understanding of the steadfast, sacrificial commitment that is simultaneously holy and just. God's love is unwilling to let sin wreak havoc on His creation without consequence, and we see those consequences all around us. But God is also mercifully dealing with those who He has called out as His. And this righteous balance is best summed up by God's declaration of himself in Exodus chapter 34. If you know the story, God reveals himself to Moses as he passes by him in the rock. He declares his name. This is what he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. That is a complex description of love. We read the first part of it and we're like, yeah, I'm with you. And we get to the second part, who will by no means clear the guilty, and we're like, that does not jive with my understanding of love. So what do we do with that? Well, before I try to explain this, I want to return to 1 John 4 because I think the next point that John makes is going to help us to understand how is God's punishment loving. This is what he says, verse 8. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, if we restated that on the positive, we would say anyone who knows God will respond in love. And in order to be able to truly love someone, to, to care for them with the divine love that we have been called to, we must know the God who loves. Or stated another way, until you know and understand the love of God, experience the love of God, your manifestation of love is always going to be limited to an earthly care and concern. And so all love has to begin with a right love of God. Now too often... We put the love of humans before the love of God. 
right? Our, our idea of love is actually far more humanist than it is biblical. And I say this as someone who has, people, has had people challenge me on this and said things like, Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love your neighbor. And my answer is always the same. No, he didn't. What Jesus said was actually far more instructive. See, what happened is the religious leaders were trying to corner Jesus and ask him what the greatest commandment of the law was. And they figured no matter what he asked, they could use it as ammo against him or answered. They're kind of like, it doesn't matter what he says, we've got him. Jesus was wiser than them, as usual. And this was his answer in Matthew chapter 22. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. By the way, that is him quoting Deuteronomy, which we read earlier. This is the first and greatest commandment, or this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so the idea here is that you have to love and know God, reestablishing that relationship that was broken in the garden if you are going to be able to love your neighbor properly. Otherwise, our love will only ever be a simplified temporal human love. But when we love as Jesus lays out here, using our our love and understanding of God to fuel our love for others, then we are able to access not only a care and concern, which is greater than our capacity, but also something that is much different than how we would love if we weren't Christians. This is because when we use our understanding of God as the basis for our love, the priorities of love are different. Notice here, John does not tell us just that God is loving. This is what he says. He says, God is love. Which means that God is not only the source of love, and and it's not just that he loves more than we do. It means that everything he does is an act of love. Right? He's not loving, he is love. And so whenever we go back to the Old Testament and we we see God's self-description or how he's acting, We need to recognize that God does not suspend his love when he judges. He does not sometimes act in wrath and sometimes act in love. He is love. Everything that he does is loving. And his justice is loving his creation enough to protect it. His law is loving us enough to warn us and tell us that we are not good. His grace is the way that he both satisfies justice and rescues his people from their sin. And so we see God's description of love is far more complex than what we tend to settle on and define as love. John now goes on to go, this is where it all points. This is where it's all going. This is how you make sense of it. You make sense of it in Jesus Christ. This is what he says in verse 9. He says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but rather he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God is love. He is always loving. But from our perspective here on this earth, it doesn't always look like love. 
Because God knowing and working towards the best in all situations is muddied by sin. And so we tend to view God's love through sin, right? We see the suffering, we see the hurt, we see the pain, and we kind of put that all back on God. We read his love and his goodness through the brokenness of this world. But John encourages us to let Jesus become the primary lens by which we understand everything else. Jesus is the means by which God is going to reverse the fall and use Abraham's descendants to bless the nations and work to bring his people back into his loving harmony. And so we need Jesus to manifest God's love to us, the love that's always there. And so Jesus comes to earth. He rejects all offers of alternative loves, right, sin, so that he can act as, it tells us, the propitiation for our sin. What is propitiation? It's satisfying the punishment that sin requires. Right? God's love for his creation and for his glory impels him to act justly towards those who have destroyed his good creation, who have acted against his love. But in this, God always has made a way for his people to come back into a loving relationship with him. And it's through Jesus. Jesus pays the penalty, satisfies the wrath, and unites us with his goodness. Which means we can now enter into and experience the love of God because we live through Jesus. It is his loving work that allows us to know love. And so in the gospel, we see that God's love initiates and sacrifices and empowers. It is a love that is interested in what we need, what is best for us, not what we think we want. God's love is concerned with what is ultimate and eternal over what is finite. And in love, God is willing to give himself for a people who have done nothing but reject him. And so John ends this section by making clear, if you have received this love, if you see it for what it is, you will be propelled to live out the love of God. This is what he says in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If our view of God remains simple and small, if it merely provides us with an opportunity to avoid hell at the end of this life, then we can justify not loving others. Or we can turn love into a form of tolerance, which is basically just kind of like, let's keep everyone happy. But if we see the whole story of God's love, the loving way in which he created and rescued and protects us, disciplines us and invites us into the perfection of his love, we see our lives now as a conduit a way in which his love is made known. And in that, love is not an option. It becomes the orientation of our life as God grows his love in us and reveals his love through us. So the obvious question then is, what is the character of this love? What does it look like? I will say, when I started writing this sermon, I intended for a much larger part of this sermon to be on the practical side. Um... But it might be, maybe it's fitting um, that his love is the overarching um, fruit. 
that we be a bit more theological today than the rest. Much of how we love is actually going to be built out of the rest of this series. And we can see this simply by looking at one of the definitions of love that the Bible clearly gives us in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. It says, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I would say in that definition we see patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness, all things that we will be talking about as we move through this series. And so the character of love that we are called to will be built upon as we move forward. But I do today want to focus on one aspect that sets Christian love apart. There's more than one. We're just going to look at one. That Christian love should always be aimed at the eternal good of another person. Let me show you what I mean by that by looking at a very well-known verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, this phrase, speaking the truth in love, has become sort of shorthand for how Christians should operate, right? It's the idea that we need to balance truth and love. Um, the idea that it usually points to is that we kind of have to find a middle ground, right, between the harshness of truth and the softness of love. But as we look at God's love through time, we see that there's not a distinction between the two. Truth and love are not opposite ends of some spectrum that we have to find a middle ground of. Truth is the flavor of our love. In other words, we should always speak the loving truth. But we also must do this with the eternal good of the other person in mind. Our goal in this then is, as it says, to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Which is to say, God has given us, specifically in one another, the means to grow in our relationship with Jesus. But it also means with people outside of here, you should always be thinking, how do I bring them closer to Jesus? How do I bring God's truth to them? The loving truth considers the ultimate goal of perfect harmony with Christ and his people in how it seeks to love others. And in that, it is not loving to withhold God's truth for the sake of making people momentarily comfortable. Love is bringing people to God and bringing God to people. And this will, at times, make Christian love seem harsh to the world. Now, we need to be patient and kind and compassionate. Again, we'll be talking about all these other aspects of what this looks like. But we also always need to aim at being faithful. Right? Being faithful to God and directing people to His redeeming love. And that is going to require saying some lovingly true things that do not meet the earthly standard of love. And this is because in the world that we live in, love is synonymous with feeling good about yourself. But the truth of sin and all that we have done to reject a loving and good God does not make us feel good about ourselves. As a matter of fact, when you start to talk about these things, you may be called hateful, judgmental, some other names that I probably shouldn't put in the sermon. 
But it's impossible to truly see the love of Christ without facing the truth of our sinfulness. The punishment that we deserve is the backdrop for understanding the love of God to us through grace. And without loving truth, Jesus becomes nothing more than an option on your path of self-exploration. The gospel shows us how the difficult reality of our rejection of God's love opens the door for the good news of grace and redemption. And what we are told here is we are the means by which this loving truth is shared with the world. It is through God's people that the world knows his love. May we not be a people who withhold this love out of fear of being labeled unloving. And so we come here every week to be reminded of how God's love was revealed to us through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we take communion to remind us of this love, but also to fill us, to give us the strength so that we may go and love others. And so as you come to the table today, come to see the love of Jesus given for you and to commit to living that love out truthfully as we proclaim his love to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the many ways in which you have loved us, even the ones that we don't see as loving at the time. We thank you that you discipline those you love, that you correct those you love, that you rebuke those you love. God, we thank you so much for loving us and giving us a way to come back to this loving relationship that you have created because we have no means to get to you but by Jesus. You have given so much for us. You have sacrificed sacrificed so much for us. All of it out of your love. God, give us a clear picture of your love so that we may love properly. Help us to know and experience the love by which you have loved us so that we can love those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.